Yo, yo, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of the Mahama Khan podcast, a fortnightly podcast. This is a special episode because it's the third part of the trilogy series that I've been doing with psychologist and entrepreneur uh, Mitya Chernko. So far, I mean, our goal in doing this conversation, which we will talk about at the beginning of this one, was to get a greater understanding of personal development, a topic that spawned a ginormous industry from coaching to education that really seems to be the running theme of what the internet content revolution is all about. Um, and that obviously if people have access to unlimited information, they're going to try and use it for their development. But what the hell does that mean? Um, how does how do we do that? And you know why? how can we qualitatively distinguish between all of the bullshit and stuff that's actually going to be useful for us? In this episode, we're trying to synthesize what we spoke about in the last two episodes, dealing with the virtue of Sofferson, Mitya's model of personal development attuned sovereignty and bringing it all together to come up with a definition for personal development, which is, of course, very loose. Um, this conversation is a good example of what's called dialogos, which is the ancient Greek for conversation, whereby you're exploring a particular topic and developing your ideas on it in a creative and open way. Um, we're not just giving a lecture. Essentially, we're trying to figure something out. As always, if you like the content, make sure to register to the Substack. The link is in the description. That's where I'm going to be sending out essays fortnightly, podcasts fortnightly, two essays, two podcasts a month on philosophy and deep personal development topics, mainly aimed at people in their mid to late 20s, starting to grow up, probably getting over the session, can't stay up past 11 o'clock at night. And we still want to live a meaningful life. So, you know, somebody's got to figure something out here. But without further ado, here's the interview. Bo. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you are joining us at the third part of this trilogy, the Return of the King, the final chapter for now. We might do more, but um, the goal of this series was to have an expanded, kind of fleshed out definition of personal development, which is becoming a very important concept and is, of course, filled with social media bullshit and lots of nonsense. So we were trying to make try to introduce people to some new ideas and see if we can come to a, a better place of understanding with it um, and something that we can communicate and, you know, use for ourselves and for other stuff. And in this episode, I mean, we want to kind of deal with some of the stuff we left hanging in the last episode and then try and synthesize what we've talked about uh, in the first two episodes and this one and maybe tentatively propose a definition for personal development that makes sense um so yeah to start off with i mean there was the two things for this one really was sofferson um which is a virtue sometimes translated as temperance um which is in kind of opposition to enkratia enkratia is in aristotle's view 
having power over yourself. So it's when you see the tasty cake and you have to force yourself not to eat it because it's delicious. Um, exerting kind of influence on yourself. Whereas Sofferson seems to be a different kind of thing whereby you've evolved to become kind of oriented and tempted towards the right thing. So you don't maybe even see the tasty cake. <laughs> maybe you're so focused on doing wonderful things and you know your life is so great that sugary escapism doesn't appeal to you. Um, I'm not really sure. So I guess, Miji, what does Sofferson mean for you? Where do you see it fitting into all this? Because it seems important, but it's complicated, doesn't it? Yeah. As you were talking, I got this idea for the first time, um, connecting it to Ian McGilchrist's work with the left brain, right brain hemisphere, kind of master and his emissary. Um, and it felt like Kratia and Kratia is like this very cognitive, very kind of cortical left brain, kind of late to the party, human cognition, kind of, I'm gonna consciously kind of do stuff. And Sofferson seems like you've managed to somehow come to an agreement with your unconscious mm -hmm. mind or like the right hemisphere or whatever. So like all of your cognitive systems are on board with your idea, right? So from your emotions to your, you know, attention uh, to your behavior, it, it becomes a habit. You kind of offload it from this conscious, heavy kind of energy, dense process you need to constantly invest in into something that just comes naturally. So, um, yeah, for me, for me, it's, I would kind of, how I would connect Sufferson to some aspect of my lived experience or life or what I see around me is, um, when you wake up into a self or into a habit or a way of living and responding that you really wanted, um, but it just happened. <laughs> so for me, it's an end state of a I would maybe even go so far as to venture that Enkratia maybe mm. is the first um, is the first step. Like you need to start consciously, um, and then if you manage, you know, to kind of get a hang of the programming language of your mind, of your unconscious, if you're uh, skillful in how to relate to it, um, then you can kind of get to a point where all of the systems are aligned. So that I, I assume that would be much easier <laughs> if you were brought up in a certain way. And when you're younger and plastic, like all of the initial imprints and habits and frames that you create, um, I think that's still the sweet spot mm. to do any kind of intervention. Um, but later on, yeah, I, I would assume it needs to start with some conscious effort. And then, you know, this black box process of how do you then kind of plant the seed of the conscious effort and then, allow it to grow roots. 100%. That's exactly what I was thinking, which is really interesting in terms of the, in Kratia being like an intermediary process, almost like a habit changing where you have, you know, this 30 days or whatever it is to build a new habit. And that's kind of a period of having to exert mm -hmm. will on yourself to mm -hmm. not do something. But then over time, it gets a little bit easier. And I know I can think about that with habits myself. Like I was definitely addicted to video games when I was younger. And now video games are kind of like, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of salience for me. And mm -hmm. a lot of things are like that, that become less salient. So mm -hmm. I guess for Sofferson, it seems to be that the right relationship or the right salience here, you find the right thing salient. Um, 
and there is a an implicit assumption there of what the right things are um which is maybe debatable but um it seems to me that you've got yourself in some sort of mm-hmm. shape that you're less vulnerable to vice and impulsive gratification mm-hmm. yeah i'm uh I'm wondering if there's anything <laughs> more mm. to be said about suffers and it's uh i guess what what opens up as a potential door to explore is um to try to zoom in into this black box process right so how to transition from Ankratia from this kind of forced discipline to this state of just not being pulled by temptation anymore like if there's anything we can we can say about this transition mm. how to cultivate it or yeah I, I and it seems to be pretty central to personal development that at least that we're talking about that the sophrison seems to be the kind of the goal state of that you're that well yeah i guess it's not a final point but it's it seems like an ideal really in terms of that your salience landscape is aimed the right way rather than how it is oftentimes which is all over the place um and that you're finding the right things relevant the right things salient um and so you're not having to kind of um force yourself to do things you can act naturally in a way um which is seems to be yeah quite common to describe in the sage but yeah in terms of helping people to transition from one to the other that just seems like habit building but you'd have to first of all decide what your bad habits are and mm. um, how you're going to face them what you're going to replace them with and I wouldn't be an expert on any of this but um virtues seem to be good habits vices seem to be bad habits so it's about separating your virtues from your vices and implementing some sort of routine change i don't know if you have any other thoughts on that but yeah i'm i'm wondering when you said that it's the end goal or the goal state Mm. or something of personal development for me it it feels Mm. more like a process um, it feels more like um, mm, the difference between personal development as some kind of, um, you know, forceful maintenance of a idealized state, right? And you kind of, for probably superficial reasons or reasons that don't go deep enough and that don't convince like your unconscious mind or like the right hemisphere or whatever um you try to kind of keep up a certain facade or a certain lifestyle or a certain way of responding and for me suffering is more like okay the, the difference between going out into the supermarket and buying an apple and planting and going through the whole process of setting up an orchard somewhere you know that that can generate apples right mm-hmm. so that kind of a difference right that's for me it's more of a methodological point if you really want to do kind of deep personal development or individuation or growth um yeah it's it's more of a methodological thing um i would say that the end goal would be something deeper like it would be maybe more related to the different personality mm-hmm. traits character traits yep. virtues and stuff like that 
Um, but what what I also wanted to kind of um, mention is that when you mention habit building, like I agree, but if if I try to kind of um, remember <laughs> uh, a thought kind of exploration I did a while ago, where I tried to map the four levels of uh, mm -hmm. knowing from Verveki with um, with different um, kind of analogs. I got to like the the participatory thing. I, I think I linked with um, personality traits. Um, I think I linked perspectival with mm -hmm. virtues. Um, I think I linked the procedural with um, with um, kind of capacities and propositional with values. So, and capacities and habits, maybe that, that could be somewhere in the ballpark. But I would, I would maybe say that yes, habit building is a part of this sufferson. But uh, I know personally, like I've done, I've read Atomic Habits and stuff like that, yeah. and like tried different 30 day challenges and habit building stuff. But for me, often it fizzles out, like for X reasons. Uh, and I think there's this sufferson. I think it, um, for it to work well, I think it would need to have scaffolding on all of those four levels, right? So, for example, to connect, to start connecting with the value that's important to you. So if we try to place it in a concrete example, what I'm <laughs> trying to kind of cultivate in my life is to get this proper order of doing stuff in my day. So to start with like the most important thing as soon as possible in the day, right after my morning routine or whatever. Um, and to do that, I'm I'm assuming what, what would be needed for that to really stick and to be done efficiently is to kind of have this contact with values first, right? To kind of figure out, okay, why is this important to me? Like what, you know, in my case, it could be something like efficiency. It could be something like integrity. It could be, you know, certain values. And then, okay, like what are the capacities that are needed in the process? So it would be impulse control. It would be planning. It would be goal setting. It would be different capacities, habits. Um, and then virtues and linking it to this propositional thing, uh, to this perspectival kind of layer of knowing. Um, yeah, it might involve kind of embodying certain virtues and maybe bringing, bringing to mind and embodying certain role models, right? That, I don't know, <laughs> people like Elon Musk or David Goggins, you know, or certain people like that have virtues of persistence, that have virtue, certain virtues, certain ways of, mm. of looking at the world. And then at the bottom to kind of be aware of certain personality traits that I have and certain character kind of traits that I would need to develop. Um, yeah, and then finding some kind of a package and that being the strategy that would help get me to the suffracinic way of, you know, it's just natural as waking up in the morning and now, you know, brushing my teeth is very natural. And the same thing, it would be just yeah. like, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> I get up in the morning and I think what's the most important thing I could be doing. Mm. And I just focus on that. So I think all, all of those four layers would somehow need to be addressed with habits probably being related just with the... Oh. that is yeah that's such a great fleshing out because that's exactly what i was thinking of. i mean in terms of temperance the original meaning of that is basically like to desire the right thing not to desire what's shameful but 
that implies that you know that you have clear-cut values, mm-hmm. like that you're desiring the things that are of the highest value rather yeah. than just, you know, pithy distractions that might seem good, but yeah. that might not be the ultimate good. Um, yeah. And that, the yeah, sorting out those values first would be key to yeah. desiring, to even just to know what the right thing is, is to desire it. There's a, a lot of philosophers kind of talk about that, that knowing the good thing is about is how you're going to pursue it. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's also something you were talking about there with virtues. Like Aristotle mm-hmm. says that, you know, character is just the end result of habits. And I've heard that people say that virtues are good habits and vices are bad habits and that these habits result from prolonged attention to certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, So your body becomes habitually used to attending and to desiring that thing. And then, so what I guess what we're talking about is changing the aim of that. So we're talking about a a change of character, really. Um, And what we talked about previously was that changing character can change personality. Something I'm interested in here is that the f- the virtues are often looked at as like forms that are timeless, like they're outside of, I know they're embodied, like you said about Elon Musk mm-hmm. and David Goggins and people that embody these virtues, but that the virtues themselves are kind of the ultimate good, like the platonic forms, that they exist outside of time and space and that we kind of mm-hmm. the best we can do is to try and follow them and bring them into being um mm-hmm. and so i guess it kind of mm-hmm. to tie it into mm-hmm. personal development is is personal development getting in touch with some sort of form i mean is there are we suggesting that there's a a form of personality at mm-hmm. the end that we're aiming towards that is what the virtues are kind of constraining because uh, habits are as much constraints on behavior as they are particular behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a... <laughs> yeah, that's sorry, a I kind of threw that one at you. But... <laughs> Let me just get some intellectual <laughs> breaths before I dive in. No, I love it, I love it. I'm, maybe, maybe what comes to mind first as a potentially useful concept to help us kind of survive longer as we dive to the depths is uh, fitness mm. landscapes and attractors mm-hmm. to fitness landscapes. So um, I would say that like human beings, you know, we do have this essence, you know, that's partly based in our DNA, partly based in our ecological niches, partly based in, you know, it then gets more and more malleable as you go through kind of culture, the physical space in which you live, um, the individual kind of knowledge and possessions you have and whatever. Um, But I would say that like as a human being in a particular context, at a particular point in space and time, there are more or less optimal ways to be, right? And I think like different layers of that change like with different speeds, right? So for example, in terms of career, like if you got the boat and became a programmer and learned programming, like, I don't know, five, 10, whatever years ago, that was pretty optimal, like in terms of, you know, depending on your values and stuff like that, but on your earning potential, on your lifestyle, if you value mobility, you know, whatever, like you could, <laughs> that was pretty optimal, right? And that was like a newly emerged attractor in this fitness landscape. But I think then if you go down, like into more and more stable layers, like 
the same way you can go down to kind of, you know, you could assume that continents just are, you know, and even if you would look like at ancient maps, the first human maps, it would pretty much be the same if you control for the error. But now we know <laughs> they're not, like they're drifting. They're drifting with centimeters per year, but even that is changing, right? So with that being said, I think, yes, we could kind of treat personal development as this consciously driven process of trying to orient yourself in this kind of metaphysical abstract fitness landscape, right? From where I am, from, you know, my starting point, my personality, my capacities, my language, my culture, my, you know, the capital I have, the possessions I have, the network I have, whatever. And given my kind of purposes, goals, mission in life, whatever, desires, like what would be an optimal place to position myself in this fitness landscape? And the process of getting there, uh, specifically the layer of like, what do I need to develop and change about myself? Um, I think that would that could be construed mm. as personal development. Yeah, and just um, that it seems like that that, the goal of that fitness, orienting yourself in that fitness landscape that has emerged from tradition, at least in the West, as far back as, say, you know, almost the pre-Greeks. We don't really know where these virtues and values came from, the kind of cardinal ones, um, which then came into Christianity, but it still have remained largely the same, mm-hmm. um, that the proposal from them is that the best way to exist in this fitness landscape is to follow these virtues. Um, and Augustine talks mm-hmm. about that the will, mm-hmm. um, the will to live rightly is shaped by the virtues. So if your will has become corrupted in some sense, so perhaps, you know, desiring things that are bad for you mm-hmm. um, through self-deception and self-destruction, mm-hmm. then desiring the virtues can kind of reorient you in that um, and that it'll take you in the right way no matter what, in mm-hmm. some sense. Or that it's maybe not the right way, but that it's the only way almost or that it's the the only path to wisdom being the end goal of it um and that it's the model that we've established through tradition for what a person should be and how has, has it internalized i would yeah, just sorry, propose i would propose for us to kind of increase the resolution on the concepts of good and bad in yeah. this context as we use it um, and maybe to start, I, I, I just throw in this metaphor of, um, like having the capacity to produce a certain kind of outcome. So like you mentioned Aquinas, right? Or mm-hmm. Aristotle and people like that, they went through a certain search process. They went through a certain psychological process and they ended up with this insight or this conclusion that. These are the virtues and these virtues are the, the optimal kind of way to be in that context, right? So that's akin to someone being able to make a table or make a certain tool, right? To make a hammer. And then the difference is kind of once a hammer is made, do you know how to use a hammer properly, right? And I think those two processes are equally important. Like I, I'm not saying like everyone <laughs> should go through the process of learning how to make a hammer, which in this analogy would be kind of, Okay, can you reproduce whatever psychological process Aquinas and Aristotle went through to get to this end of virtues, which I would assume, for example, in Native American cultures or in Viking cultures, their philosophers, their versions of Aristotle and whatever, 
given on their kind of positioning with other cultures and their ecosystem and their access to resources and technologies, they might have come up with a different set of virtues, right? And there was this, like a famous clash was, for example, between the pagans and the pagans and the Christians and um, you know monotheistic religions. Um, so I I would just I prefer <laughs> I prefer not to take the hammer on its like own, but I I really like to know how to make a hammer if if need be, right? So for me, um, like that's the process that really captured my attention and doesn't want to let me go, which is okay. How would you reproduce this, right? How would you go through the same process and arrive to a certain mm-hmm. set of virtues um, that you could then say that are that they're optimal in in some context, right? Because um, I, I would I would argue that the 20th, even the 19th, 20th, and especially the 21st century stuff changed, <laughs> like stuff really changed, like with being able to produce digital artifacts that can be extremely expensive. Uh, being able to, like, if your aim is to do good and kind of serve the whole and help the well-being of the community in which you live, and if your community expanded to kind of the planetary community, the global community, and if it includes kind of non-human life forms, you know, and with all of the technologies at their disposal, from programming to genetic engineering, like, we're in a sandbox, you know, and surrounded with toys that I, I do not think Aristotle and other people could have imagined. So I think if we somehow found a way to repeat that process, I'm not so sure we would get to the same or identical kind of results. I'm I'm hoping like we would converge on some things on a very yeah. Deep level, I mean, but, um, mm. yeah. I don't know. Just wanted yeah, to, de- to definitely. I mean, that. there's the yeah. thought that's coming up for that is um, that maybe we don't have to go down that road for what for our purpose. Um, I, I, in that we can say that this is one mental frame that's come out and you can argue about whether it's the canonical one or not or whether it's fit for purpose for now i mean the argument for a lot of proponents Mm of um kind of ancient philosophy for modern life is that human beings are still the same that we haven't really evolved past these motivational emotional problems that we have Uh, our perceptual systems are largely the same Um, Uh our relationships albeit more complicated and um, mm-hmm. we still have the same yeah. kind of hardware and we're still grappling with it as conscious agents but i don't know if we have to really commit to that to be honest um more that that's yeah and it's not something we could yeah do during it's it's taken <laughs> what three thousand years <laughs> probably won't finish it today but um just that 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 frame of um frame of values definitely is required to structure your desires it's required to structure your attention which structures your habits and your behavior and um, which one's right and which one's wrong maybe isn't for us to say each person probably has to work that out for themselves um, and that seems in a sense appropriate because we're trying to not have this kind of locked in you know that this is the most relevant thing or this is the most important thing we're talking about personal development, which is a process of change between things, probably. Um, so, yeah, for people to be aware maybe of the structure that requires changing, like to go from one frame to another frame, you'd need to understand values and how values relate to attention and 
come from relevance realization and how your personality traits are make certain values salient and other ones less salient and based on circumstances you might have to change that um and that that's kind of part of personal development so Mm -hmm. maybe i wonder if we could focus more on the the processes there rather than say the frameworks yeah 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 Yeah, makes sense um what i would like if we're talking about the process for me um i have very very (laughs) superficial uh understanding of whitehead Mm -hmm. and process philosophy but um like with with process there's um it's somewhere it's headed to, right? It's it's mm-hmm. from one state to another. And, and maybe just to kind of converge fully, because before I, I diverged with this kind of a bit kind of relativistic take on the virtues, but I would propose that there is some kind of an outcome that, that does seem kind of universally valuable, which is can we figure out a way to kind of um, act in a way that maximizes the well-being of nested context in which we're in across mm-hmm. different time frames, right? So can we be like Greg Henrique says, can we be a good ancestor, right? Can we figure out a way to act so that we kind of increase our own well-being while also increasing the well-being mm-hmm. of other people around us or the other beings, basically? Um, and doing so that, you know, it increases the chances of that working long-term. So I would... I would say that if we take mm. that as some kind of an end goal, um, yeah, I, I guess that would then be the, the the benchmark for figuring out how as a person can you then start aligning different kind of aspects of yourself. I was going to gonna say, that to seems that. like the outcome almost of like the the increasing of well-being mm-hmm. for yourself and then the increasing of well-being for people and surrounding and then for that to have a kind of temporal effect that goes on beyond that. That seems to be the result of a particular, it might be a, a, a character, um, a type of person. I know Peterson says, which I always loved, which kind of gets you out of the solipsism of virtue ethics, which is that like, he says, you're not just one individual, you're a community of individuals across time. And that living in right relationship to your future self is actually also mm-hmm. living in right relationship to the village mm-hmm. and to everybody else, because that future self, you're hypothesizing an ideal situation. So your future self isn't just going to be like, I'm great, everybody else is dead. Um, like the the maximum optimal circumstances for you in the future mm-hmm. will also be the maximal optimal circumstances for the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. It will also be the maximal optimal for the economy that you're embedded in for the, and uh, so on those nested mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. um, rings that we're within as individuals. Um so I wonder, does that situate it maybe more in the what we talked about, like the agency of the individual, um, where we have our control? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like I've, I think I've mentioned a few times mm. this idea of attuned sovereignty, but I would add that as an equally important thing, not just to kind of increase and contribute to the well-being of other people. Um, but also this kind of attuned sovereignty, basically this capacity to kind of connect with other individuals and groups, primarily individuals, because that's the only thing you can actually relate to, 
um, yeah, to kind of deeply connect and to kind of be able to understand and kind of take their perspective, get a sense of their kind of values, of their of their goals and purposes. Uh, and then the sovereignty part, which is, can you then, like, how effective are you as an agent? Like, how capable are you of, how big of a delta, how big of an influence can you have, you know, towards whatever matters to you, which is ideally aligned with, with what we've outlined before. So mm. for me, it's both well-being and increasing this kind of attuned sovereignty, uh, meta capacity yep. or whatever we want to mm. call it. Yeah, and that has the... The relationship part of it's so important, but as well, I'd never understood sovereignty in that way of almost like your capacity for um, affecting the, well, I don't know if affecting is the right word, but your capacity for increasing the well-being of the people that you're around. Like, are you saying that there's levels to this sovereignty within individuals? Hmm. Yeah, degrees, like a continuum, for sure, that I hope is open-ended, right? Like we can imagine an individual, you know, uh, developing himself into the kind of a person, like the Tao Te Ching says, you know, into this virtuous person that naturally gathers the kind of um, respect and admiration and following of other people. Like there's this anecdote in a very local context. There was this uh, director of a local uh, nursing home, like an elder's home, home. and the municipality wanted to replace him, even though he was extremely popular and well-loved by, by the people, by the staff, by the, the elderly. And the elderly came up to protest in front of the municipality building, like in huge droves, you know. And it's like, if you're, if you're able to develop yourself into the kind of, kind of a person that can, you know, form relationships like that and then lead and coordinate people towards like a shared direction, in, in his case, this was creating a, a meaningful, a fun, a healthy kind of environment for, for people to be in. If, if you can do that, like his sovereignty mm. expanded, like he got access to resources, he got access to, to followers. And, you know, if you keep going, you know, you could get elected as a mayor, as a president, as a whatever, you know, you could, you could help align the major world leaders. And, you know, I, I don't think there's an upper limit to sovereignty, but yeah, for, for me, just basically comes on to this very cybernetic kind of concept of um, an actuator. Like, to what degree, like, how powerful can your actions be? How mm. big of an influence can it have on whatever mm. matters to you, right? And the attuned part of sovereignty is basically, you know, can you be aligned with other agents in your environment as you're doing that, right? So not just to be the psychopathic kind of driven CEO, you know, but... um. Yeah, the tune part. And yeah, just full disclosure, I've I've been developing this model for, for years now and I find it very hard to unsee it. <laughs> and whenever I think about personal development and like the different capacities that people can develop, I always see it like and even with different psychotherapeutic approaches and stuff like that, I, I just see it everywhere. I see it as a very elegant, parsimonious model for what the different capacities or the processes are. Um, so I, I would propose that kind of this attuned sovereignty as a capacity is um, one of the best mm. roadmaps I found so far for um, orienting yourself in this space of what could you develop with yourself, which capacities can you develop, and um, yeah, they have this nice opponent processing dynamic in it, 
um, and they have this both psychological and relational aspect. So for me, it's as comprehensive as my mind can can come up with or, or fathom. So I would I would I would be happy to find a counterexample of some form of personal development that couldn't fit into this model. I'm sure there is some, but yeah. I haven't been able to. I mean, it seems pretty like so it. It seems very applicable, like in terms of making yourself the best, most capable version of yourself to do good for other people, to release their best, most capable selves and having almost this positive causal network effect within yourself and then within other networks that spirals out into Mm -hmm. the larger sphere. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's this. mm, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm. No, no, I'm I'm wondering how uh, how it relates with suffering, but I might uh, be able to do that. That's a, <laughs> a bridge I, uh, that doesn't need to. Well, be. I was just thinking because okay. um, there's an interest. The example you were given of the guy in the old folks' home is really interesting because um, it kind of it reminded me of Socrates. Just I don't know because he's old, I suppose, and kind of a good guy. But um, it there's this like overlap because in Stoicism they recommend like the meditation of the ideal sage. So you pick, for them it was Socrates, whoever is somebody that you really admire that has these qualities that um, you bring out admiration and love in you and makes you want to emulate them um, and that you should imagine them in your mind like your conscience and that have them kind of commentate on your actions and judge, you know, where you're going wrong, where you're going right and to have this inner relationship with them, with your own ideal and that you could have more of those kind of relationships mm-hmm. um, as you admire different people and you in that way build up your kind of inner authority mm-hmm. um, that guides your actions. And so you have more mm-hmm. perspectives than just your own perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of your kind of sophistication. So uh, how does that relate to Sofferson? I mean, Sofferson then in some sense might be because it seems very much like in Kratia where if you have an inner voice that's saying, don't do that, don't fucking, you know, don't eat the cake, don't, you mm-hmm. know, get off get off the internet for five minutes. Um, whereas maybe if you get get to the point where, like, yeah. you've you've stopped doing those things, you could imagine the, the inner character kind of going, well, you mm-hmm. seem to have it. Like, you're almost like a mentor or something. It's like, well, you've got the swing of it, so... You know, I I'll take a back seat until you you need me again. Mm. Mm. There's two light bulbs that you just set off in my mind. <laughs> the first one is the importance mm. importance of role models and having them intimately in your life. Because I'm imagining this meditation on the sage is proportional with how intimately you've managed to meet the person, right? If you just read about mm. Socrates, there's that's one thing. Mm. But if you've lived with him, mm. right, and walked with him and seen him respond, seen him deal with things, had personal conversations with him where you opened up and got a genuine, authentic response, right? Or, like, I, I think in Buddhism and in a lot of spiritual traditions, they really kind of um, put emphasis on this idea of transmission, right? That there needs to be a direct lineage, right, between masters between gurus so you have this mm-hmm. personal intimate face-to-face kind of interaction and exchange and initiation with someone and 
if you're open, I, I'm imagining what that does is basically it downloads mm. like a simulation yep. of that person or that kind of agent in your mind that you can then use as you go on, right? So that's the first light bulb, this importance of being kind of um, an intimate and personal and kind of this transmission relationship with a sage, right? I'm I'm guessing you might, if you consume a bunch of YouTube videos from someone um, acting in different situations, that you mm. get something approximating that, but I'm still guessing that there's something about personally relating with, with a sage um, that's maybe even necessary for this, right? And the importance of eldership and elders for, for making that happen. So that's the first light bulb. Um, and the second light bulb is like Sofferson, for me, what what connected was that um, the, the difference between a kid being told, don't put your head on the stove because you're going to get burned. And then when he gets that experience, like he has this embodied understanding of, oh, mm. that's why you don't do that. So I'm imagining if you're able to internalize the sage or like, because I'm always wondering, like, where did the sage come from? Like, it's not an infinite regression problem, right? He went through a certain process and got to certain insights, right? But when you get this, when your perspective expands well enough, so you have like a very embodied and first person immediate understanding of the consequences of what you're doing, right? And if you're able to kind of uh, step into other people and how your actions are influencing them, I think it's very much akin mm. to that hot stove thing, right? So you'd you do not want to kind of spend another minute browsing, you know, trivial and addictive kind of internet content because you know how precious life is and how short it is, right? And how long certain pursuits that are noble take. And then you're like, no, I, like, I, you, you maybe even get sick to your stomach of like, why would I do that? It would be like, you know, throwing away perfectly good food, you know, and knowing that, you know, in, in two days you might starve, you know, why would I do that? So I think it comes to this, like if you're able to take on this perspective, then it just mm. naturally, like you see it, right? And then you don't need to kind of go through this elaborate process and trust authorities that don't really relate to your Man, personal experience. Again, two light bulbs, definitely right away. Like the um, the the sage thing, like mm. that you could almost through like the personal relationship, but also through many different sages, like that you could end up with a meta sage. Like from not just Socrates, but mm. you love, you know, Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, like the mega sage. <laughs> but that you you generalize eventually what's <laughs> common across all of them and that it informs this kind of inner authority better. So that the process of um for everyone you're constantly yeah. adding to this inner representation. And then what it seems to be like the stove example is so perfect because that's all that's like knowledge. You're like you've kind of done this, and there's a there's a, a a knowledge of what to do and what not to do there, and that perhaps if you've internalized this sage enough, um, contained within that is the knowledge of what to do and what not to do from loads and loads of people, um, loads of people who are very well thought out people who obviously knew loads of other people who have thought about this a lot, and you end up with this kind of cascading. Um, model that you've developed from these other people models and that if you could do that enough um, and do it honestly enough that you could end up then a position where you just 
you know what to do and you know what not to do. And if you listen to it, you'll be um, in a pretty good place. Or you'll get killed by the Athenians, like Socrates. <laughs> Man, if we figure out a way... If we figure out a way to get some AI people involved and use yeah. stuff like machine learning and neural nets and stuff like that... <clears throat> Like the the if if we got a well labeled data set of sagely behavior, like whatever that is, it could be kind of videos of people responding in a wise way. Mm. It could be stories about stuff like I don't know, but just if we if we gathered up all of these gems that were kind of carefully and and you know with blood, sweat, and tears carried through the generation and distilled mm. kind of as this potion of wisdom. If we figured out a way to kind of gather all of that into some labeled data set, um, you know, and convince DeepMind, you know, the company <laughs> to get a crack at it, I think we could we could get this meta sage thing because we, we do have language models that you can talk to, right? We already have them, but just the data set that they were learning on, I, I don't know exactly, but I assume it's just a random sampling of the internet, like as big as they could. Mm. They didn't filter yeah. like just the sagely you know samples um but but if we found a way to do that like uh, that would be amazing to talk to that ai like to have some kind of a and it could potentially i mean thing. like the most scalable like wise sage that ever existed that could guide people through their lives uh verveke actually talked about a very similar thing in um he did a talk on uh, artificial intelligence but then artificial wisdom and artificial rationality and how we're putting all this time into artificial intelligence, but mm. you can be very intelligent and completely irrational. So you can't perceive essentially when your frame is wrong. So you'll be very, very effective in the wrong direction. Um, and rationality is required to apprehend when you have the wrong frame and to realign it and create a new frame. Um, so his argument is that we're going to create really intelligent machines that are completely insane, basically. Um, and so we need to work on artificial wisdom and artificial rationality. Um, and yeah, it's a very interesting topic for yeah, Amen. what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, how, again, I suppose to bring it back to this um, core question of, you know, what is personal development? Could this sage be the inner guide of personal development? Um seems to be yeah i think so mm. Mm. i think so like i i remember this um the the thought that the sage mm. is to the adult what the adult is to the child right so maybe what we're talking about is there's a certain mode of being that's sagely that's wise right and people might have called them saints sages whatever and like a few people managed to stumble into that out of necessity or, or chance and maybe what we're trying to figure out is how to create this escalator to get more people to this sagely level of being and whatever i, I think it's the same with like literacy mm. and stuff like that because we were you know we were living in times where the 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 mass of humanity you know like to start it off like with violence like some at some point in history it was you know a source of pride of how many people you killed you know and how strong of a warrior you were 
But then eventually we got to grasp this value of human life. And if we find a way to coexist and cooperate, we can do bigger things together, right? And then, you know, stealing now, like, you know, sometime in the past raiding was, you know, something you just did, you know? Now we're kind of, it's still happening. Maybe even you could argue it's happening on a bigger scale in more sophisticated ways. But like we have managed to construct escalators in the past for literacy, for writing, for math, for computer use. Like like we have upscaled and upleveled humanity as a bulk um, a bunch of times. So I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for personal development like as this, you know, systemic, maybe even scientific practice to be aimed towards this escalator towards... It just struck me as you were speaking. <laughs> I, I think it's very, very much attuned to, to wisdom and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't think we need to reinvent terms much, but yeah, wisdom, I think it's a very fitting term. To yeah, it struck me as you were speaking that uh, the sage is the most developed person. Like, <laughs> they're the one, like, in if if we subscribe to this framework... They're the most, if an adult pushed their development fully, they'll become a sage, almost like a Pokemon or something evolving. Um, and that, that, mm-hmm. and I'm maybe there's something beyond right? post-sagehood sage. stuff, but let's say, yeah, let's say it's mm. the next level for most and humans. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of, um, I guess, yeah. And then the the characteristics of the sage being wisdom and virtue, um, there's a lot of interesting work on wisdom at the moment. I was reading the Wisdom Consensus Report from 2019 um, that Verveke and some other ones worked on and their kind of idea as wisdom as this um, perspectival metacognition that's grounded in morality, that's morally grounded. Um, you know, the ability to see through illusion and self-deception, um, the ability to assist other people coordinating long-term planning um implementing abstract concepts and then there's there seems to be virtues within wisdom almost like you know being able to take other people's perspectives uh, being adaptable um and that there's a humility to it and so it seems like some of the other virtues are that's always what they say anyway that wisdom is this kind of meta virtue that seems to contain all the other ones mm-hmm. um so maybe we've mm-hmm. just provided a very <laughs> kind of um, like a weird way round argument for the sage and for the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. Because we definitely didn't start with that presupposition, I don't think. Maybe not consciously mm-hmm. anyway. Um, mm-hmm. It's all about convergence and reproducibility. So if we found another way to the same conclusion, I... I mm-hmm. I welcome that. Um, like I, I would, I would offer to do a speed run of this attuned sovereignty model, and yeah. then get your take on on how you think the different virtues could be subsumed yeah. by that. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, if if you're up for that. Okay. So. Um, Basically, what this attuned sovereignty model is, it's an adaptation of the hexaflex model, which is from ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, slash training, um, from Stephen Hayes and, and others. Um, 
And basically what, what my contributions were, were expanding it from a set of psychological flexibility and psychological rigidity, where most of the time psychological rigidity was termed as the source of most forms of psychopathology. Although when you dig into detail, people did mention and kind of give due to this psychological process that it has its value. But for most humans in our culture, they are overdeveloped and the, the part of psychological flexibility is not developed enough. So that's usually the kind of uh, antidote to a lot of psychological suffering or kind of uh, maladaptation or, hmm. or spinning in loops. So what I did is basically I, um, I tried to redeem the psychological rigidity components from something that were quite negatively expressed into something that's, that's, that's valued, that could be termed as a virtue. Um, and then what I also did is I noticed that this was very, very individual, very psychological in nature. And I missed this relational component. Um, and then when I started playing with it, I, I felt like there could be a very nice symmetry between all of this. So basically what it comes down to is a set of psychological capacities, psychological processes, you could say, um, that all of us have within us and have the capacity for. Like we do have the capacity to kind of uh, flex and extend our hand, right? You have the contractor muscles and the extensor muscles. All of us have that. <laughs> Some people haven't developed to that degree that they can take a, a heavy metal ball and throw it the farthest, you know, that humans have ever thrown it in history, right? You can develop capacities. Or you could have it, for whatever reasons, neglect or, or accidents, you could atrophy it to the point where you cannot lift a cup anymore. And it becomes a problem, right? Um, so... Those capacities, I'm arguing, are kind of universal. They, All of us can, in this moment, we can tap into them. As you're listening through it, I'll try to kind of give descriptions in a way that, you know, you can tap into that, like, like you could extend and kind of contract your hand. Um, yeah, and they're basically paired. So the first thing is they're paired within a psychological contraction and a psychological expansion pole. So you have this dynamic of contraction and expansion. You could say That's exactly what I was thinking of. The, uh, whatever. The, um, the favorite the, you could map that on quite well to those. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the, the psychological and the relational aspects, right? So attachment theory comes in. So I call it relational attachment and relational detachment. There's two kind of relational processes you can engage in. That I would argue they start with the psychological kind of parts first. Um, and then vice versa, you could say that those are formed by the relational processes early in life, like you as a baby with your mother, right? So uh, it's a chicken and egg thing, I guess. But um, yeah, so that's the first kind of architecture. Uh, and then the what the hexaflex does, it basically breaks down this capacity. We could define, let's say, attuned sovereignty. If you press me for it, it would be the capacity to be kind of in deep connection with other people, deep alignment with other people, while kind of being aware and open to kind of what's happening and engaged and moving towards a value direction, right? So it has this component of awareness um, and of kind of efficacy, right? So that's the, the psychological part. You're basically a good cybernetic system, right? 
Um, and the relational part is you can kind of align and navigate and negotiate with other social agents in the field. Um, so that's how I would define the capacity. And then what the Hexaflex does, it breaks it down into three response styles. And those three response styles are kind of the central one you could say is you can be present and connected or you can be absorbed and withdrawn. Right. So the presence is basically it comes down to mindfulness in a way, an expanded definition of mindfulness uh, and being absorbed is kind of being able to kind of, you know, lose yourself into this conceptual universe of remembering and imagining and kind of taking on a fixed role and self. So it's this very kind of mental, mental thing. And the same relation, it's kind of being withdrawn, right, instead of being connected and kind of face-to-face -face contact with other people. Um, from polyvagal theory perspective, it would basically mean that you're engaging in co-regulation with other people, right? You're allowing your emotions to be fully visible on your face and in your voice, and then you're receptive to the emotions and kind of the, the, the input and the responses of other people. So you're forming this kind of unit and the portal is basically open. Um, then the second response style uh, is Either you're open and receptive or you're closed and projective. So basically being open means that um, like you can be present to stuff, right? But there's this openness involves this equanimity, involves this non-judgment, involves this acceptance, right? Involves this kind of being able to kind of submit to other people or kind of align or follow them, right? Um, and this kind of closed and projective basically means that you're kind of you're not letting stuff in but you're kind of um in a way you're insensitive to contextual conditions and you're kind of placing your anchor in yourself so for example there could be certain thoughts certain rules that you have right that go against social conventions or uh, yeah and projective basically means that instead of receiving the other person you're kind of expressing stuff right you're trying to convince you're trying to communicate um, and the third response style is basically related to kind of behavior and kind of values and meaning and motivation in a way. So the kind of expansionary part is to be proactive and pro-social. So you're basically kind of, you're consciously and intentionally kind of choosing and pursuing a value and you are consciously and intentionally kind of taking into account the larger whole and trying to act altruistically, right? And the, the opposed part, the kind of contractionary part, is being passive and protective. Right? So passive is basically energy conservation. Keep your head down. Don't attract attention. Line of least resistance. Avoid risk. Avoid failure. Kind of play it safe. And protective is like contracting your horizon of care, basically, to narrow and narrower circles, to yourself, right? To taking care of yourself, protecting yourself possibly at the expense of other people at kind of situations that are really unfortunate and that are kind of win-lose situations. So I'm wondering if at this point, before I kind of dive deeper, because each of those response styles are ultimately made of two kind of psychological capacities. So that's the kind of micro level stuff. Um, but before I get into that, I'm wondering like if you have any any thoughts or any, any responsive to this kind of psychological Expansion, psychological contraction, relational attachment, uh, relational detachment, and the three different responses. Yeah, it, um, it seems quite sim 
No, no, I, do, I definitely do. I it seems <laughs> quite similar to, I mean, I'm thinking about the stability plasticity kind of trade-off um, that you mentioned, but also like what Verveke talks about in the um, inactivist big five personality theory, that that kind of trade-off relationship goes all the way down to the um, 10 factors of the five-factor personality scale. So say for agreeableness, you have politeness and what is the other one um it's not compassion um is it compassion Compassion. possibly but that there's um a trade-off between them like as in compassion is the natural one bottom up whereas politeness is more the top down socially mediated and that agreeableness is all about basically social how to behave in social situations what's socially appropriate um what's optimal socially Mm-hmm. Um, and that they exist in this trade-off relationship. And then he, I think he puts agreeableness in another trade-off. I can't remember exactly which trait. Is it conscientiousness? But anyway, the idea is that there's these, um, the exact same thing that you have the two mm-hmm. opponent processing forces um, that play off against one another yeah. to try and end up in right relationship or optimal mm-hmm. gripping um, with the situation. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's yeah. the same element is there. Yep, this yep. opponent processing is there. I've I've tried to do some work with mapping the because there's also the the big six kind of hexaflex model, mm-hmm. the hexaco model, yep. which isn't that different from uh, the big five, but in some ways the way emotionality and neuroticism are mm-hmm. projected a bit differently, which does also have some kind of content level differences. But I tried to map mm-hmm. the the six. Uh, personality traits to this and i got to some tentative kind of analogy that's kind of what i'm what i'm wondering about i suppose do you think is there i think it's i would i would say i would say it's this i think there is like i'm i'm still i would place personality like at the core then i would place this um maybe virtues as the kind of character level and then i would place uh this attuned sovereignty as this level of capacity and knowledge um, and skills. And I don't know, it, for me, it's, it feels more tangible. Like I can do stuff <laughs> with the attuned sovereignty model. Like each of the six capacities, I can kind of tap into them and evoke them, right? There, you can create exercises for them. For me, it's very, it's much more pragmatic and useful than, mm-hmm. than just virtues, right? Mm-hmm. Or personality traits. Um, so I think they do, they do stack, but maybe they're on like, um, yeah, they're on different levels of of kind of um, concreteness, right? Personality traits to be this foundation, long-term, even neurologically, biologically based stuff. Then kind of virtues as this character and this life history, kind of deep conditioning and habits and patterns. And then attuned sovereignty, I would, I would say it's this kind of very, like it's a gym schedule, basically. It's It's very kind of different muscle groups and different kind of, exercises and processes that you can cultivate um so just for the sake of time i would try to speed up a bit and kind of yep. zoom into each of the six and give a very brief kind of descri- description and try to kind of evoke it um, as we're speaking so if we focus on the center i mentioned this response style of being present and connected versus being absorbed and withdrawn right so this if you can imagine like a hexagon right this b-shaped thing right Imagine each of those corners like is a sphere. It's a circle, 
and each of those circles basically has you know the four dimensions it has the expand psychological expansion and the psychological contraction and on the left and right hand side it has the kind of um, the psychological and the relational parts right so if we start with the with the first one it's basically about um, and each of those six are, are related to a basic dimension of the psyche as as uh, Hayes has kind of Stephen Hayes has uh, rendered it so this one is about attention right the top one is about attention the bottom is about self or selfing as they like to call it as a process as opposed to kind of a noun like we self in a way like we choose moment to moment what kind of a self do we want to kind of embody so the attention one basically the psychological parts relates to present perception and remembering and imagining right so that's if, if we try to tra tap into that right present perception that's basically kind of trying to take a step down from the mental kind of robot that we're in and tap into our senses right and just kind of take in like the flow of information right the smells the bodily sensations that we're feeling. If you're attentive enough, you can feel your heart all throughout your body. Like you can feel your heartbeat in your fingers, right? So it's this process, present perception, being in this moment, you know, and trying to expand as broad as possible across all senses um, to finer and finer details. And remembering and imagining is then kind of plugging out of this, right? And booting up our internal internal simulator so if i ask you like do you remember how you started your morning like there's a there's a process that unfolds in you right you do something internally or if i ask you can you imagine something about your future can you imagine like if you have a calendar like if you have certain tasks like what's your week gonna be like what's what's happening tomorrow do you have something to do are you anticipating something are you worried about something like it's a process that you can tap into right so that's the psychological part and then on the relational level it's um response i've i've really struggled with the wording but it's i called it responsive presencing so basically what i what i mean by that is um it's merging the attention and behavior with other social agents so if you if you think about um if you think about like in improvisation improv theater you have this exercise where you kind of mirror each other right or if you dance like if you dance with someone you need to kind of merge and become a single social agent if you're a, on a basketball team right you need to have this this responsive presencing right um and I've like I've I won't go through it, but just for for this example, um, I have broken down each of this kind of psychological capacities into three distinct kind of let's say exercises or behaviors that you could kind of tap into. So for responsive processing, it's stuff like reciprocal contact. So it would be basically <laughs> kind of looking at you and then uh, creating space for you. And I don't know, just offering if there's Anyway, you want to respond to whatever I'm saying. To respond reciprocally to... Um, Is there? Yeah, I'm. well, 
I, I think I get the idea. I mean, I'm seeing it like these different kind of levels and different ways of looking at kind of these complex individual and relational, um, I don't know if modes is the right word, but yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. I, I, but are you mm-hmm. thinking of this as a therapeutic device? I would say processes, mm. processes. Yeah. For me, it's very, it's very pragmatic. It's a process that I can mm. tap into, into myself and then kind of cultivate. For example, like a lot of the people cannot separately move yep. their toes or their fingers. Right. And it's kind of, you can tap into like, what is that process inside mm. me and then cultivate it. So, um, yeah, so that, this that allows people to see content, the different right? capacities and then to yeah. practice them essentially where they might not have knowledge of yeah. the existence, almost yeah. like you're laying that out a map. The- for the possibilities of yeah. um, these processes. Yes. Yes, that exactly. can pick up. Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 a visual would be extremely helpful. <laughs> yeah, I can, add, I'll, it, I'll I can add it in certainly for the video. So with this responsive presence, yeah. Sure, sure, we can, we can. Wonderful. Um, so then another kind of aspect of this responsive processing would be improvisational openness, right? So the simple exercise for this is yes and, right? I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but whatever sentence I start, like you then say yes and, and try to tie the thread together, right? So you're you're trying to see what the other person is up to, what direction they're heading in, and then you're trying to kind of align with them and build on it, right? And it's a capacity, it's a process you can engage in. Um, and the third one is authentic vulnerability, right? So can you kind of show up as yourself? Right? Can you be present here without thinking about, you know, other stuff and but like be fully present and put your attention on another person? And I think circling does a wonder, wonderful day of wonderful way of uh, doing that. Um, so yeah, that would be responsive presencing. Um, then the the bottom one is dissociated solitude, and it's it's a weird term, <laughs> but basically what I wanted to capture with this is. Um, it's isolating your attention and behavior from external social influence, right? So the the previous one was merging it. This one is basically an example would be if you're in a co-working space or if you're in a, in a home and you have family members there and you need to do homework, you need to do work, you need to do certain stuff, right? Or you, you, you want to do something and then other people are trying to kind of, you know, get this responsive processing process with you. They want to kind of hook up with you, but you don't want to, right? You want to keep going. You want to kind of isolate yourself from external inferences. It might be other kind of kids trying to provoke you at a playground and get you to fight. You know, it might be other people to kind of try to get you away from a certain goal at the workplace and try to get you to do their own thing, right? So can you isolate your attention and behavior from external influence, especially external social influence? Um, yeah, it's kind of being able to kind of be comfortable alone, right? In silence, being able to be absorbed in your thoughts deeply, uh, and then be just this unresponsive stoic kind of, um, you know, take some, you know, <laughs> prompt from the other people and just allow it to dissipate and just do nothing in response. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll then just wrap up with the, the final kind of process of this, um, uh, central response style, which is selfing. And this one is the hardest, mm-hmm. basically, to explain. It's it's about how do we continually construct and step into ourself, right? 
So the kind of, um, if we start with the psychological contraction part, the psychological uh, component, it's conceptual identification. So basically it means you, you define and take on a certain role, right? So it could be, it could be kind of, um, I am a psychologist, right? And whatever that means for me, it's a certain kind of vocabulary that plugs in. It's a certain kind of, um, you know, way of responding. There are certain things that are and are not appropriate. Um, it could be kind of deeper. It could be like, I'm a shy person. You could have this thing, or I'm a lazy person. Like you have a concept, you have a role defined, shaped. And what you do is you basically step into that clown car. Like you step into that and then what that does, it, it limits the behavioral repertoire. It limits the different responses you can have to a certain situation, right? And you can imagine that there are kind of, there are problems where you can have either a, a narrow set of roles that you can step into. You don't have enough roles uh, to kind of meet the situation or there can be conflict between different roles, right? You can be a certain way in a certain relationship and a certain way in a different context and there could be clashes, right? Um, so that's conceptual identification. And the top one is fluid self-awareness. And this is, this is the sneakiest way I've seen to smuggle spirituality into, into, into psychology in a way that's actually grounded and kind of pragmatic and, and useful. And basically what this means is, can you, can you tap into this observer self? Right? Can you tap into this state of being aware of the different roles that you hold and knowing that you're distinct from all of them? So it's the best metaphor I have for it is, can you move from looking and interacting with the PDF document to turning it into a Word file that you can kind of edit and shape? Right? So this one is basically it's this transcendent self-awareness. Right? It's knowing that like... <laughs> Like 20 years ago, I was, you know, a, a very, very different person than I am now, right? And 20 years from now, like, I'll be a totally different person. So can you kind of step into that process and kind of see and shape different roles that you have? So, for example, what does it mean to be a partner for me? Like, if you have an intimate relationship or romantic relationship with someone... You might have a concept of what it means to be a partner, like what you do, what you respond, how you relate, how you don't relate. And this fluid self-awareness would basically mean, okay, I'm, I'm able to step out of that and then either shift into a different role, like from a partner to a friend, like in the breakup process, or like I can shape and modify whatever being a partner means to me, right? Being loving in a different way or being more compassionate or whatever. Um, and if we shift into the relational side, it's basically either uh, on the kind of relational detachment side, it's role-based profiling. So what that means is when you come into contact with another agent, like the best example is someone in a supermarket, right? <laughs> you just have this role that you project on them. Like you're a cashier. Like what you do is you take my stuff, you scan it, I give you money. That's it. That's our interaction, right? And that's role-based profiling or someone's a police officer or someone like you're a friend of mine or you're my enemy. And like you just put this thing on people and then you relate with this icon of the person. And the, the kind of opponent process is this kind of um, this I-thou recognition, right? So 
being able to kind of relate to this agent in front of you as a DAO, right? As this intrinsically valuable human being that, you know, if you're a teacher in school, you don't know what this little being in front of you is going to end up in 20 years. Maybe he's going to be the president. Maybe he's going to be your doctor, you know, but to relate to persons as kind of fluid agents, full of potential and have this unconditional positive regard um, and this loving kindness towards people, right? And you can extend it to beings. Like if, if you see a mosquito, like you could just swat it, you know, is this annoying thing? Or you could kind of try to capture it, take it out, whatever. Like there's different ways to relate as a DAO. So I'm wondering just as this, at, at this point, um, yeah, how, how do you kind of, can you, can you feel kind of the, the practicality, the pragmatic kind of nature of all of these four processes and how they relate together as we've done with attention and, and self? Is it kind of, yeah, I don't know. It seems, yeah, I I can see definitely the practicality in terms of that you could easily turn this into processes that people can follow and that there's a clarity to that you could exercise and that you could instruct people in, um, in a way that's very clear cut. And also, I mean, the, for me, a lot of them are, I mean, they're all like massive skills, I suppose. Like, I think at the end for me, it was very much like metacognition Um, like being able to go from a first person to a third person to yeah. reflect on, you know, the thoughts that are going on in your mind, the way you're perceiving things, to take yourself out of the frame that you're in compared to other frames and adjust accordingly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the overall question, the personal development, I kind of see all of those as being within that framework of needing, of being all examples of how you could develop personally and maybe as a way of providing the processes to people that wouldn't be aware of them. So like you've pre-prepared essentially through, through expanding your own capacities and you've recorded all of these different ones and then you can therefore communicate them to other people in a way that's educational and therapeutic. Um, I, I guess I wonder for, people for the individual um the cultivation of these capacities and and the processes i mean are are you saying that these are the key ones because i doubt they don't encompass everything i suppose but that these are the most pertinent um processes for people to be successful agents like the sage that we've kind of discussed um I kind of wonder how you see it fitting in or do you see it fitting into what we've discussed so far? Yeah, like for sure. For for me, this seems like a very comprehensive map of this kind of attuned sovereignty capacity, which for me, it's it's Mm -hmm. high level enough that it leaves freedom to be unpacked into an individual's life with their unique values, with their unique context, their, you know, developmental goals, the career goals that they have, relationship goals, different domains of life that they value. I think it can be unpacked into basically any kind of life. Um, and it, I think it comprehensively captures like the, the psychological processes that are under conscious influence, right? Because there are certain things like the fear response, like the amygdala, like that's going to turn on, like, you can then yep. choose how you respond to that, but 
there are certain psychological processes that we don't really have cog like cognitive, intentional, conscious influence over. So for me, this seems like a sufficiently comprehensive map of this high-level metacognitive capacities that you can kind of that that is still concrete enough that you can actually practice, right? And then being domain general, they hopefully translate into other areas of life. So I would say, like from my side, like like I hinted at the beginning, like I I would I would struggle to find an example of a personal development activity that could not be expressed as a combination of some of these elements. So if we take assertiveness mm -hmm. training, um, it could be construed as a combination of, for example, um, this dissociated solitude, emotional boundaries. You know, it's all all kinds of different kind of capacities that would that would connect. But for me, it it serves as a kind of an as a kind of a periodic system of psychological processes, right? So it's atomic. It's as yep. distinct as I can get them as kind of distilled to, to their essences, and then you can combine them together to create higher order capacities. So yeah, I like for, for me, for my personal use and with people I work with, this is the, the model of, you could say personal development yep. that, uh, mm. yeah, I, mm. I lean on. Do you think now we'd be ready then to try and create a, or to allow, I suppose, to see maybe might be a better word, uh, an alive definition of personal development that has come out of what we've discussed. Um, there's definitely something mm -hmm. coming up for me in that the the metacognition aspect and the behavioral aspect as well, this kind of duality perhaps between action and reflection, um, advancing those into better relationship with the environment into a more optimal circumstance. So you're optimizing your metacognition to optimize your behaviors towards, you know, the highest level of development you can attain um, in wisdom and virtue. Mm -hmm. There seems to be, that's kind of a wide circle. I wonder, can we narrow it in more until we get something that's, that feels right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to, to mention it for the sake of completeness, there's a, I mentioned two processes which were related to attention and self. There are four others that I won't get into mm -hmm. now, but I just want to name them because I think they might be helpful elements for, for the definition. So on the, on the kind of left-hand side with this open and receptive, there's uh, emotions and cognitions as separate parts, right? So how do you relate to your emotions and how do you relate to your cognitions? Um, and then on the right-hand side, is motivation and behavior, right? So with motivation, there's stuff like values in it, need awareness, uh, and with behavior, it's like habits, um, yeah, developing skills, capacity, stuff like stuff like that. So for me, um, if I would venture to kind of distill all of that into some kind of a definition, um, yeah, I would mention that it's the the conscious cultivation of the way you relate with emotions, cognitions, attention, self, motivation, and behavior. So they can be so that you can start seeing all of these psychological processes within you mm -hmm. and relational processes um, 
as like it, they become distinct to you like you can focus in on them and then you can start hmm. working on it like you become aware of yourself and stop treating yourself as kind of a fixed object and that's just the way i am and then you can start kind of consciously cultivating and having this kind of i, I think they call it the sacred self or the the kind of second self um yeah to basically be able to get into this let's say scaffolded position of the sage which isn't functional yet but you kind of start stepping into that position and looking at yourself as you really are <laughs> like without <laughs> you know being truthful to yourself and letting go like i remember a personal process when i was preparing my linkedin page like in the very 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 beginning like i was thinking about you know all the stuff i'm gonna put there and every little thing i ever did in life you know and kind of i just wanted to kind of paint this incredibly inflated picture and then I remember going through a process which was very much aided by, by my girlfriend in this safe context, which was then kind of stress testing all of that and really kind of poking each thing and kind of mentioning, okay, is this a core thing? Can you really stand behind this? Is this a direction you want to keep developing in? So there was this process of, you know, self-reflection, becoming aware of myself, kind of letting go of certain kind of delusions, maybe I would even say. Um, and then what, whatever is left at the end, to have this kind of sober assessment and then starting this process of kind of prioritizing the different aspects of yourself that need care, that need development, then figuring out like, like you would a gym strategy or a diet strategy or, you know, like you would go about building a house. Like then you engage in a process of working on one of these mm. kind of dimensions. But I really like the, the six dimensions of attention, self, emotions, cognitions, uh, mot motivation and behavior. And all of them then translate into relational things as well. But um, yeah, mm. yeah, I, like I would, I would sum it down into consciously steering your own evolutionary mm. process. For me, that's that's the simplest way that I could. Yeah, and that I mm. maybe I would add a qualifier like, in a way that's maximally benefit, like beneficial to you know the global <laughs> ecosystem or whatever. But that's my maybe personal mm. value scripting you know, or whatever. Because I would, I would still allow freedom. Like you could, technically, I think you could do personal development in a way that would be destructive, you know, and that would be, I don't know, it, it might be kind of anti-social personal development, but I think it's there's still a subset of personal development. Yeah, that's really interesting. You think yeah. about the Jungian shadow, like that it could be actually developmental to get in touch with those mm -hmm. darker impulses that society doesn't want mm -hmm. and aggression and whatever else that 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 might need to be integrated and that that leads to a a more developed personality or a more complete personality I, I really like that consciously cultivating your your evolution and then through the as a kind of higher level um i think also qualifying it with you know the optimal gripping of the consciously cultivating your evolutionary process uh -huh. in response to the appropriateness of the arena that you find yourself in or that you are moving towards um so that there's we have the the conscious element that it's you the agent doing it the process which is this trade-off relationship of evolutionary you know you can one thing can survive survival of the fitness um you have to kind of make choices and decisions to progress but that it's also embedded in a context which might be 
people, circumstance. Um, it is, it's very much in the world. It's not just this kind of nucleus um, mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would add to that, like this mm-hmm. agent arena fit, right? I think there's there's something to be said about um, maybe consciously cultivating the evolutionary process of like your being in the world. Mm. It's a weird sentence, but it's what what I'm trying to get to is um, I think there's potential for personal development through aspiring to change the arena in which you're in, right? So the process of, for example, if you're a part of a team in a team setting to to help that team become more kind of pro-social, more altruistic, more caring, more efficient. Like you're change, you're you're trying to change the arena through how you interact with it. So I think there's something to be said of kind of steering or cultivating this evolution of this agent arena fit in a way that kind of maximizes the potential for for well-being and kind of sustainability of yeah whatever life <laughs> is living is living there. Mm. I like the word thriving. Yeah, I throw that somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean that there's a that it's moving towards the optimal circumstance really, not necessarily exactly what's going on. Um as we kind of pointed out mm-hmm. the the when you have mm-hmm. your future self that would be your ideal future self, it also specifies an ideal future circumstance that involves family, friends, the economy, mm-hmm. everything else. Um and so that optimal circumstance, or the optimal person that you could be, also implies a an optimal circumstance. Mm-hmm. So I guess consciously cultivating your evolutionary journey toward the optimal circumstance might encapsulate that a little bit more. Mm. Hmm. I really like the idea mm-hmm. of domains of life. Um, like there's a, a common thing in, in coaching. Another thing is to kind of ask people to think of their like life as, you know, a space. And then just to map out like what are the different domains of life that are important to you? Like health, family, you know, career, community, spirituality, whatever, fun. Um, and I think personal development deals with kind of identifying what are those domains of life? And then when you use the word optimal, I think personal development also involves a mm. process of defining what that is, right? So coming to clarity about what does optimal mean for me across all domains of life that are important to me. And once you have that clarity, you know, to go basically through this process of making it more and more concrete, right? From <laughs> Some people have like 100,000 year old visions of what they'd like to kind of contribute to. Some people have quarterly, <laughs> that's fine, you know. But then just to have this, once you've defined what optimal means across different domains of life, then kind of ground it down to like a, a vision, a yearly vision, goals, and then actual tasks and behaviors that you need to kind of conduct to get there. And in the process, there's probably kind of things involved with personal capacities and skills that you need to develop mm. to be able to get there. But yeah, it's something about constructing and kind of 
stepping into your kind of ideal life. Yeah, and also knowing means. what it is, I suppose. And, you know, I'm always tempted in these conversations to do, to say that, you know, it's something like what we're doing already a little bit, which is this process of discovering what it is that we actually think about something before we can actually are to go back and then pursue it in a different way. Like this conversation now has made me think about personal development mm-hmm. very differently than previously I had before. And I probably thought I knew what personal development was. Um, but that I've got a more high resolution picture, which probably will again improve in the future, but mm. that that can assist me in mm-hmm. undertaking the process. My, my understanding of it, affects the actual activity itself um and that yeah that that's also a part of personal development in this weird loop of the more you learn about it maybe the more you can be effective at the process mm-hmm. yeah for sure mm. the anagogic ascent right as Reveki yeah mentions it yeah positive spiral okay well i guess that might be the point to to depart from for now i i suspect we'll come back again probably have to have some more um once more into the breach and fill up our intellectual oxygen tanks um, mm. but yeah i would i would love to i would love to um if mm. if you're interested at some point to uh, go through the the different kind of aspects of this atun sovereignty thing and yeah try to kind of tap into it and see if if there's any bridges to be built or connections or mm, implications. And yeah, get into the capacities more in terms of how you can actually teach them to people. Because mm-hmm. as we've talked about, you know, the evolutionary traps, the need for personal development to be something that can be generalizable and taught to people as a subject for psychological literacy, for evolutionary literacy, mm-hmm. that um, people can understand this yeah. process and hence be able to avail of it Um because it's important information. Yeah. Yeah, for me for me what's important is that people would be able to conduct yeah. these processes on their own. Like sure, you know, you can go to a fitness trainer and they show you the proper mm. form for push-ups. You can do that, but if people for whatever reason because they don't have the money, they don't have the time whatever, I think there are resources available for like, you know, <laughs> how to do push-ups, how to do physical exercises. So, I would love to kind of share mm. and express this model in a way preferably with some i don't know resources yeah. attached for people that they could start kind of tapping into these processes exploring mm. them and cultivating them on their own i think that would be something yeah. I'd, I'd very much appreciate absolutely and of course to. building the technological meta sage that can curate the internet <laughs> which is probably gonna be a long-term project but <laughs> it's a pretty good one um so thank you so much Mitya, yeah. once again for this wonderful series um for your honesty for your intellect Thanks. and for your willingness to participate i appreciate it deeply i hope you enjoyed that three-part series with Mitya chernko if you want more uh you can go to the substack which is mahanmccann.substack.com the link is in the description drop in your email address you'll get two essays and two podcasts a month as we explore these deep philosophical and personal development topics. Stay in touch. Bye.